is hell. Live from late capitalism, where property has more rights than people, this is hell. Religion can be found on the slaughterhouse floor across the United States among capitalism's refugees. And no, that is not a line from some long-lost draft of Howl or Naked Lunch. People who have fled their homeland, fearing for their lives, have taken arduous, dangerous journeys to relocate in places like rural Iowa, where they seek a better life for themselves and their families and children. Yes, of course, they do face racism. But the stereotype we have of thoroughly unwelcoming small towns and communities dominated by white people, according to today's guest, is exaggerated. The United States is currently experiencing a reconsideration of race and the legacy of racism, and it's apparently happening in rural America's former farming communities that were struggling for their very survival. During the 1980s, states like Iowa opened their arms to refugees fleeing the horror of war and frightening levels of violence. Bringing refugees to your community was a politically popular policy that resonated with religious organizations advocating to help those uh, help those out who are in desperate need, no matter who they are or where they're from. When those same refugees arrived, they found work alongside poor rural whites in the meatpacking industry, which flourished as local small farms were eaten up by big agricultural concerns. These refugees and rural whites would then find themselves next to each other at churches, temples, or mosques celebrating their faith. With that kind of contact, rural communities have been far more open to refugee presence than you might imagine. The positive economic impact and the work ethic brought by refugees have saved some small town and some small towns and injected back into communities something native Iowans recognize in themselves and their family histories of a work ethic. Today we'll be discussing agriculture, meatpacking, race, religion, and what's really happening in rural America when we speak in a few minutes with ethnographer of religion and editor Christy Navan Warner. She is author of Meatpacking America, How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland. Christy is the VO and Elizabeth Kahl Fig Chair of Catholic Studies and a professor in the departments of Religious Studies and Gender, Women's and Sexuality Studies at the University of Iowa. Christy is also the author of The Curcio Movement in America, Catholics, Protestants, and Fourth Day Spirituality. You can follow Christy on Twitter at Christy Naban. That's Christy, K-R-I-S-T-Y. Naban, N-A-B as in boy, H-A-N. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. It's Tuesday, which means producing today's show is Egon Sheely. Egon, anything new by you? Oh, I'm just caught in... I'm getting family married in October, and so it's just taken all my time and energy right now. So you're part of the wedding party? Uh, no, I am. I am getting married a second time. Oh, really? Yeah, we got married over COVID. So family, my parents, you know, couldn't attend the wedding because it was in the middle of a global pandemic. And uh, so we're getting married the proper way with everybody's family there. We got uh, like a 10 person wedding last summer. So it's going to be outdoors? 
Uh, yeah, it's going to be outside my wife's mom's uh, Colonial Art Museum in Newport, Rhode Island. Holy cow. Fancy, <laughs> fancy, oh, fancy. I know. That I is know. fancy. Look at you. But I got to say, I kind of want to drown myself. It was much easier to do <laughs> in my backyard, you know? <laughs> I kind of want to drown myself. That's a really nice sentiment going into your second wedding to the same person. I do love my wife, but you know, I'm I'm not a big wedding guy. I'll <laughs> yeah. just put it that way. I am in the same boat with you. So uh, we, we've had a couple of brushes with fame to share with you later on today's show. I'm not a fan of fame. Not a big fan at all. I do not like celebrity. Fame and celebrity do not awe me like I think they're supposed to. I don't really kind of nauseate me. I find the pursuit of celebrity and fame kind of disgusting, which would seem contradictory for someone who's been doing a radio show for 25 years. On the other hand, I have somehow been able to do radio for that long of time without attaining celebrity or fame, so I either suck at doing radio or I'm fantastic at avoiding the spotlight. Either way, we have a couple of stories. Uh, well, one story about a late great guest on This Is Hell, and we heard from a somewhat famous listener of the show who wants to party. So I'm going to be telling you about that later on. More importantly than any of that, Egon, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? I really like this question from hell. Uh, this week's question from hell is what lies beyond the final paywall? <laughs> what lies beyond the final paywall? It sounds kind of ap- apocalyptic. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins. Your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want, you can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. Special thanks goes out today for the tithing-like commitment by Kilter. Thank you, Kilter. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's Wednesday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Egon will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Christy on meatpacking. You can send your guest or topic suggestions to chuck at thisishell.com. And if we feature your guest or topic on the air, we will thank you again on air for your suggestion. Paul wrote to us at chuck at thisishell.com and suggested himself as a guest, which is totally fine. Paul writes, Dear Chuck, I'm ready to offer my services as a guest in This Is Hell on This Is Hell if you are interested. I'm a writer for Jacobin and Catalyst, and right now I'm trying to promote my article in the most recent issue of Catalyst on the sources of the Republican Party's derangement. And it is indeed become and if it is indeed becoming a working class party. Spoiler, it's not. I've attached a copy of the article here. I'm a big fan of the show. I particularly liked your interview with my friend Niall Reddy and would like to talk about the uh, Republican Party with you on your show. All the best, Paul Heideman. First, listeners, you may remember Niall Reddy uh, being on our show back in early August to talk about his AfricaIsACountry.com article, A Terrifying Vision of South Africa's Future. If South Africa's left can't find a way to channel popular discontentment into the building of mass progressive movements, it will instead morph into anarchy, nativism, and inevitability, and inevitably, 
authoritarianism. Again, you can find that interview by going to thisishell.com and searching on Niall's last name, Reddy, R-E-D-D-Y, and you should listen to that that interview because it actually relates to today's interview, and and it relates to yesterday's discussion that we had about neoliberalism with Suzanne Schneider and uh, her history of jihad and how it relates to the Proud Boys and the far-right movements here in the United States. Second, Paul's article in the latest edition of Catalyst is headlined Behind the Republican Party Crack-Up, which comes with this quick summary. The Republican Party's boosters and even many of its critics attribute the party's rightward uh, radicalization to an increasingly working class base. Unsupported by any evidence, this view neglects the deeper roots of the party's evolution in the uniquely American context of institutionally enfeebled political parties and a disorganized but still very dominant employer class. Paul, I really appreciate it. Thanks for suggesting yourself, because it's easy to forget that the Republican Party is the party of the dominant employer class when we are constantly being told that it's blue-collar, working-class Americans and flyover country who elected Republicans like Donald Trump. Remember, it was white and wealthy voters who gave the 2016 electoral victory to Trump, according to exit polls, not poor or working-class Americans, as is often the narrative that the mainstream media preaches and repeats and promotes. Coming up, meatpacking, religion, refugees, and race in rural Iowa. Egon will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what lies beyond the final paywall? What lies beyond the final paywall? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com. Clicking on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But again, we have to have your answer by the end of tomorrow's Wednesday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. We have this stereotype of rural, small-town whites as defiantly racist and filled with hatred toward anyone and anything that doesn't remind them of themselves. But rural America does not live in a vacuum. The changes and transformations that happen in urban areas happen across the United States in smaller communities as well. Those changes have reverberations everywhere from places of worship to places of work. And the impact on the former farming communities has not been what the stereotypes would lead you to believe. Here to help us have a better understanding of what is happening in rural America, ethnographer of religion and editor Christy Naban Warren is author of Meatpacking America, How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland. Welcome to This Is Hell, Christy. Thank you so much, Chuck. You, you've done such a great job, you know, talking about the book. I feel like I don't have a lot to say now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, 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 only, I only have 77 questions for you, so I, don't, no. I doubt you have very little to say about this. No, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. You can Thanks fo- for having me. You can follow Christy on Twitter, at Christy Naban. And by the way, I p- appreciate the fact that you're an ethnographer of religion and still willing to come on a show called This Is Hell. I truly appreciate yes. that. 
I have to say I was a little nervous when I got the invitation, but I love it. I'm going to order some swag later. I got to get one of your t-shirts. <laughs> Thank you very much. So you write the place where I live and work and where thousands of refugees have journeyed to, to since the 1970s is the Corn Belt State of Iowa. To what degree is Iowa and the meatpacking and agriculture industries a portal for a global immigration? Because I don't think Iowa as an immigration hub is the way most people envision it. Yeah, that's a great lead lead off question, Chuck. I mean, yeah, I, I'm I'm a native Hoosier, so I'm I'm a lifelong Midwesterner, and I'm a transplant to Iowa and started working here at the university in 2000, uh, 2012. And as an ethnographer, I'm always sort of on the hunt for a good story, and that's that's one of the things I really admire about my journalism friends because they do such a great job finding a really great story. And so the story that I saw unfolding as I was in front of my eyes, as I was you know, conducting interviews was that Iowa and places like Nebraska, other sites where you have a lot of meatpacking plants and these mega corporations is usually a secondary migration hub. It's not usually the first place where refugees, migrants, asylum seekers come. It's usually the second place. And so maybe from California or from New York or from other states. It's usually the second and last place because places like rural Iowa, like places like rural Kansas and Nebraska are, you know, the go-to meat hubs, the new meatvilles of the United States. Whereas it used to be in places like Cincinnati and Chicago, big cities where the slaughterhouses and Cincinnati's Porkopolis. Today, the the hub, the center of meatpacking plants is scattered across um, rural places like Iowa, places where I visited. And you write that the elements that drive the story of disparate native-born Iowans and newer arrivals are the conjoined passions of religious faith and desire to work hard for one's children and grandchildren in order to achieve a slice of heaven on earth. So religious faith and desire to work hard for one's children and grandchildren. But we currently live in an age of increasing precarity and disparity. How stable is employment in Iowa's meatpacking and agricultural industry? And do they provide a living wage, if not better. Why are refugees attracted to this work? Yeah, in fact, that's that's such a great question. Um, the pay is is decent. I mean, and you can get a 401k. So starting on the line is, is $16 at most plants, and you can make up to about 30. And Iowa actually pays higher in its meatpacking plants. I, I certainly don't want to romanticize the work or the plants, but I do, I do think it's important that every single one of the the meatpacking plant workers i interviewed whether they were from asia or you know the northern triangle central america or white working class people said this was this was the best job they could get they worked hard they got to leave work at home and they made enough money for their families and a lot of the men i interviewed there was a really interesting gender component didn't want their wives to have to work in the meatpacking plants they really wanted to provide and be in the most positive sense of the term, they want to be good providing men. And so working at the meatpacking plant was, has been a way for a lot of migrant men to provide for their families was that these are men and women who work really hard and who want and who want our respect. So even before we had, I mean, I, I did all the research before COVID and I've kept in touch with, you know, my interlocutors inside of the plant and some of the CEOs who I've gotten to know and you know these are folks who just really want our respect and and they see themselves as essential workers before that that terminology that lexicon really became sort of mainstream um uh, yeah in the past year or so 
But as you were just mentioning with being an essential worker, in general, whether it's in meatpacking or in the agricultural industry, that work is very, very dangerous work. What impact does that dangerous component of agricultural meatpacking employment have on religious faith and desire to work hard for one's children and grandchildren? Can that danger either undermine or even reinforce religious faith and its role in a desire to work hard for your family? Absolutely. That's such a good question, Chuck. I really appreciate how carefully you read the book. It's like such a pleasure to have, it's kind of weird to have my words read back to me, but it's it's such a pleasure that you actually, you know, for me, that you dug into the book. Absolutely. I mean, the vast majority of um, what ethnographers would call my interlocutors, the men and women I worked closely with over the last seven years, I would say are predominantly Roman Catholic, although I also worked with the Jehovah's Witnesses and some Muslim individuals and some agnostics, but but the the you know, and Pentecostals is and there's a strong sense of sacrifice within Roman Catholic theology. And most of the refugees I interviewed from the Northern Triangle, for example, El Salvador, Mexico, and um, Guatemala consider themselves, you know, faithful church-going Catholics. And for them, they're, they see their work, literally the bloody work that they do, even the injuries that they get as part of their embodied sacrifice that they're making for their um, their grandchildren, their children. But interestingly, right, they are willing to make those sacrifices, but they do not by and large want to see their own children or grandchildren working at the meatpacking plants because you know, injury rates are really high. You know, uh, for example, um, there's there are several people who work at each at each meatpacking plant across the the Corn Belt Midwest who, you know, shuttle workers when they're injured to local hospitals, you know, whether it's like carpal tunnel injury or like they get cut. Um, so injury injury rate is fairly high. Um, turnover is fairly high. Um, so it is. Um, I remember Eric Schlosser's piece, The Chain Never Stops, his classic piece in Mother Jones really gripped me in such a powerful way. Um, I think the safety standards have definitely improved in plants. Certainly things aren't perfect. Certainly injuries are taking place and we can absolutely critique the working conditions, but we've come, I think the plants have come a long way from Upton Sinclair's The Jungle and even Schlosser's article. But, you know, with the lessening of OSHA doesn't have quite as many teeth as it once did, it's a classically underfunded agency. So, um, yeah, I think this is where religion comes into play. And I think there's been so many great books and a lot of recent books. Um, I saw that you interviewed Alex Blanchett recently, and I love his his book, Porkopolis. Um, and I think that we're starting to see more and more uh, anthropologists looking at the people and the impact on people, but very few folks have looked at religion, if any. And so one of the interventions I really wanted to make in this book was to show how religion worked in the plant. You know, these folks carry religion with them literally on their bodies inside the plant. Uh, so that's why your question sets a, a, a great one, because I think religion and faith and spirituality is is really um, what's keeping a lot of these folks going because they see their work as, as a ha- having a higher purpose. You talk about the way in which the uh, refugees, asylum seekers, asylees are all delineated and categorized within the United States immigration system. What are the benefits given to refugees and more importantly, why? Why delineate refugees when, as you describe them, asylum seekers, asylees are people who do not technically fit the United States definition of refugee status, but who are fleeing violence and instability in their home? Because that sounds a lot, a lot like what a refugee is. So why 
why break these groups into categories when they're all fleeing violence and instability? Excellent question. I, I, I make it while I sort of unpack the different terminologies and the meanings that they've had over time, I choose to call all of these individuals, all my interlocutors, uh, the folks I've gotten to know, refugees, because as you just said, they're none of them wanted to leave. They all are fleeing violence in a particular form, whether it's economic, political, physical, sexual violence, all of the above. And so while I explain some of the ways in which the United States has delineated these categories, I think it's just like our immigration policy has been. I think these categories can be capricious. I think they can become incredibly political, as we saw with, with our last um, POTUS. You know, I think that um, you know, calling all these folks refugees humanizes them. Um, now, refugees, those who are technically um, de jure, legally categorized as refugees, get certain economic benefits. So they'll get stipends every month They'll uh, for up to 90 days. Housing is provided. Um, they receive a lot more government aid uh, than those folks I interviewed, for example, who are undocumented, who don't receive any government aid. And so I, I made the decision to call all these folks refugees because they are all fleeing violence um, in some matter or form. So and you also point out that since the passage of the Refugee Act of 1980, the numbers of legally sanctioned refugees admitted into the United States has dropped precipitously from 200,000 to 22,500 in 2018. Yes. Yet the number of asylum seekers and economic migrants fleeing violence and the related political and economic instability continues to rise. Are people's, who, people whose conditions would have in the past marked them as refugees simply been reclassified as economic migrants and asylum seekers in order to not give them the relative additional benefits that refugees are offered? I think a simple answer is absolutely yes. And, and this is something that I really, so that's a great question. I would say Yes, I think this is political. And here again is where the capriciousness of the policies come through, how, how we as a nation have categorized people. Um, I've long been interested in uh, migration and religion and work because I'm, I come from a family of lower middle class and working class people. This, I'm from Gary, Indiana. So most of my relatives were steel mill workers or many of the women and men in my family were also teachers. And so even some of members of my family over time have said, you know, our relatives, and I hear this refrain, I think many of us have heard this refrain in our own families, well, our people came over legally, we did it the right way. And I think, and here I'm, I'm wanting to push back gently, but also with some force in the book, because I think we all have those family members. And what I try to get across in the book is that, well, maybe, maybe not, but what was quote unquote legal uh, de jure then, you know, has been made illegal today again. And so I think that this is where white privilege also comes in. I think that most of the, you know, asylum seekers, refugees, all these various categorizations since 1980 would have, you know, because they're brown, because they're darker skinned. I think that race has a lot to do with the fact that, um, you know, with these, these increasing categorizations and the unwillingness to grant asylum and refugee status to brown and black women. So absolutely. So can do you think uh, uh, categorization 
can be done in a way that does not lead to an inadequate and flawed U.S. immigration system? Or would any system, uh, any attempt at categorization be an inherent flaw in the system? Is the problem the very idea of categorization? Yeah, I think so. I absolutely think so. And, you know, what really led to this hard realization was right when we started to have um, what would have been called by many the baby jails of of of, of children fleeing violence, um, you know, during the Trump administration. My cousin, Gary Paul Nabhan and I, Gary Paul's great guy, he's an ethnobotanist, uh, cousin of mine, she's at the University of Arizona. We did a Borderlands tour where um, we had a van and we were just traveling along the U.S.-Mexico border. We crossed the border and we were just interviewing people, sort of like a Goodwill tour, trying to figure out, you know, uh, what people's feelings were. And we, we, we partnered with, or we had, you know, sustained conversations with aid organizations that were trying to provide sanctuary for those fleeing violence on the U.S.-Mexico border. And we were able to interview and talk to some women, Mexicanas, who are trying to flee domestic abuse. And some of these women had, you know, bruises, visible bruises on their bodies. Domestic violence has is no longer considered enough of a reason to leave. And so that just just really hit me that here is a woman who's been battered, who has two children, who's pregnant with her third. Uh, she is not able to, you know, legally attain, um, this was three years ago, um, you know, a legal refugee status. And that that's just wrong. That I think that's just wrong. And so I tend to be a middle grounder. I tend to be a left-leading sort of middle grounder. I, as an ethnographer, it's really important for me and, you know, anthropologists to get multiple perspectives. And, you know, the goal of the book wasn't to demonize any one group, any people, but to really sort of flesh out the complexity of, of our, you know, uh, immigration policies, uh, rural America, to push back on certain tropes, but to also say, yeah, this is wrong. And I do think uh, Chuck, that we really need major, I mean, it's not just me saying this, right? I mean, so many people are saying we need a major overhaul of immigration reform. And, and I'm not necessarily the person to say what to do, but I'm just trying to point out ways that has failed individuals. But despite the failures, the hope in the book that I try to get across is just how everyday people survive. I mean, these are survivors and how they're white uh, neighbors, um, while they can be racist, and while they can de- there can definitely be backlash and is, how also neighborly relations form and how these rural spaces can also be places of healing and acceptance. And that's the story that we, we don't hear enough about, I think, in the news and the hot takes uh, on immigration. And we so certainly don't hear the historical context, the context that you provide. You write that the Corn, Corn Belt state of Iowa has a unique history of welcoming refugees. Republican Governor Robert Ray advocated for group resettlement and refugee status yeah. for the Vietnamese Thai Dam boat people in the mid-1970s, the only U.S. governor to take such action. Executive approval from President Gerald Ford for Thai Dam resettlement in Iowa paved the way for an increased cap in the number of refugees to the United States. And for the President Carter penned Refugee Act of 1980, Governor Ray, with the support of hundreds of Iowans, established the humanitarian Iowa Shares Program, standing for Iowa Sends Help to Aid Refugees and End Starvation. And during his five-term governorship, uh, put Iowa on the map as a state where politicians, residents, and religious organizations could come together to support support asylum seekers and refugees. How significant were contributions and actions by religious organizations in Iowa 
to turn Iowa into a pro-refugee state? Was refugee resettlement in Iowa driven by religious organizations trying to motivate government to do the right thing? Absolutely. And I think that I'm so glad you you, pick, you picked that out. I think that's on page 13 in the preface. Yeah, I think having this historical perspective, um, Iowa wasn't always uh, <laughs> the way it is today, right? There's hope, right? I mean, I think to me, this is what compassionate, if one wants to use that phrase, compassionate conservative, this is what compassionate conservatism was all about. And so that's why I wanted to highlight Robert Ray. Uh, this is where, I mean, like when people say, oh, what's it like to live in Iowa now? I think this is the Iowa that I'd like to see us become again. I'd like to see more compassion on, on sort of a leadership level. I definitely see that on the grassroots level. I don't think we're seeing it on our state level from our state legislatures or our governor at all, at all now, uh, whether it's COVID or with refugees. But I think we do see, and this is the story that I really want to tell, because so many other people are pointing out the flaws on the, on the meta level, the state level leadership. And I think that they're, they're absolutely right with that. My colleague Andy Kopsa is writing really wonderful pieces about you know the state legislature on that level. My goal in the book was to look more at the the fine grain boots on the ground grassroots work and absolutely you've got really interesting what sort what what religious studies scholars call ecumenical movements so you've got like these broadband christian jewish um, muslim movements you know with you know aiding refugees uh cedar rapids is a real hub for this um, you know, welcoming, there's all kinds of organizations where neighbors are, are, our new neighbors are welcome rather than seeing newcomers as foreigners. These are our new neighbors. These are strangers. And these are Christians, by the way, who are reading the Bible very differently than a lot of the Christians who are in charge these days in these red states, right to work states. These Christians who are running these refugee aid centers see um, newcomers as and, and being called by Christ to like do the good work. So they're reading the Beatitudes. They, they're seeing Jesus as a social justice warrior. And that was such a beautiful part of this research, Chuck, because I met so many wonderful people, you know, white church ladies drinking coffee who are spending their time, you know, driving women and their families around to check in to get food for their children at at the schools where they had free lunches for the past year and a half. This is I this is Iowa and this is the Midwest. So a big impetus for me writing this book was like wanting to reclaim uh, the Midwest in a lot of ways, but showing that with evidence, right? With 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 um with the data that I had gathered over seven years. This isn't something that I, I Christy Nabhan Warren, just want to see. This is something that actually we see on the ground. And for whatever reason, I don't think enough journalists are capturing that part of the Midwest, that Iowa. We hear a lot about Governor Kim Reynolds and the state legislature, and, and that's all going on. But what we also see are like the Catholic worker, you know, these the social, social justice warriors in Iowa City, Cedar Rapids, Des Moines, doing works of mercy um, every single day for refugees. Um, so that's the Iowa that I really wanted to portray. Um, you know, I tell this to my friends, you know, I, I, I like tattoos and I have tattoos. One of the tattoos that I have is optimism is true moral courage. And that's something that I see every day here in Iowa. I see people having optimism, wanting to welcome neighbors. And, and that makes me hopeful because I think there's so many things uh, to make us not have hope right now. And so I wrote this book in a lot of ways too, so that people would have hope. And if they would see 
other Americans doing those, what I would call, what my Catholic worker friends would call works of mercy. So back in the 1970s, I just want to ask you a couple of questions about Governor yeah. Ray, Governor Ray, because yeah. uh, was his support for refugee relocation to Iowa, did that get bipartisan support in Iowa? Was this a politically popular move? Because as you point out in your book, you would hard it'd be hard to imagine something like that happening today. He did get bipartisan support and he was a mainline Christian as well. And so as a religious studies scholar, I mean, it's so important again to show context that at one point in U.S. religious history, we had, you know, you know, Christians working together and non-Christians working together, reasonable people wanting to put their state, this state of Iowa on the map as being a compassionate state. I mean, I think we've gone the other way today, unfortunately, but I have hope that we can go back to that because we've shown that we can do it, right? Um, I remember, yeah, I'm so glad you're asking me about Robert Ray. Unfortunately, he passed away last year. I, I was never able to meet him in person, but he's one of those individuals that I, I would really would have liked to have met because um, he inspired a lot of folks. He worked closely with nonprofits. He was really uh, one of those, you know, you don't hear a lot about those political characters say sort of reaching out to a lot of different constituencies and saying, okay, how can we make this work? I'm watching the, you know, I'm watching the news and I'm seeing these boat people being turned away. We don't want to be like that. We want to welcome these folks. I would personally love to see our state go back to the Robert Ray days. I'd like to, and I think we, we have that possibility, but we have to do a lot of work. So how much was this openness to refugees back in the 1970s under Robert Ray. How much was that based on a need for labor, especially in meatpacking? Was there a labor demand and Governor Mm -hmm. Ray filled it with refugees? Was this just a bottom line decision or do you think there was something more to this? Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent question. I mean, certainly, I mean, I'm I mean, I haven't talked to him, but but absolutely. So he's not somebody I actually interviewed. Certainly, um, I think there are always economic motivations with any, I I would imagine, political decision. I'm not a politician, nor do I have any plans of being a politician, but but absolutely. But I like to think, too, that with the resettlement and with the aid given refugees finding jobs, I mean, I think that um, I think it's looking at this complete package. Right. Certainly there were economic motivations for the decision. I I don't think it was the primary. I think it one was one of a handful of motivations. Um, I do think it was overall a goodwill gesture um, without being Pollyannish. I mean, I think that Ray made a good strategic decision bringing workers in the state at a time when there was brain drain, you know, uh, college graduates leaving the state of Iowa that we're just now starting to see college graduates in Iowa decide to stay. They're, they're moving to places like Des Moines or Cedar Rapids or staying in Iowa City. So certainly I think it was a way to stem the quote unquote brain drain. I think that's a, a problematic term that I'm using, but I do think it's problematic. But I also think that based on his mainline Christian theology and beliefs that he believed that this was the right thing to do. So I think it was, it was a both and. So what do you think changed? Why don't we have that kind of attitude towards refugee status, towards immigrants anymore? Because this seems to this seems to have happened in the late 70s, early 80s. And this kind of openness to refugees has waned since, well, the beginning of people would mark it as neoliberalism. So what has changed that would lead to the situation we have today, where if a governor said, I'm going to open up our state to refugees, there'd be huge right wing backlash, especially on Fox News? 
Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. I think that's that's the million dollar question. Um, how did we get to what some historians will call a new gilded age where we have, you know, five major meatpacking plants? Um, we have the few, we have the 1% controlling everything. Um, that's a great question. Um, I think in part, again, this is where my training as a, as a historian of American religions, primarily American Christianity would come into play. I've got a lot of colleagues who have written a lot about evangelical Christianity and how it morphed into what it is today. Um, my colleague, Kristen Kobes dumetz at, at Calvin College has written a phenomenal book, Jesus and John Wayne, that really traces that movement from the more compassionate conservative to the angry gun-toting, um, the more angry evangelical. Um, I think there was a lot that happened, that a lot that sort of coalesced in the 80s, right? I think we had um, we had Reaganomics. I think we had, again, this, this new Gilded Age where we had the few controlling the wealth. I think Christianity took a turn for rather it being more of a Beatitudes kind of Christianity. Jesus loves his little children. It was more Jesus, um, the masculine, the muscular Christianity, Jesus. And I think that these ideas of what it means to be Christian was really hijacked by a small vocal group. And I think that that, that that hijacking, if you will, when did its way into policy? When did its way into migration policy? I think there was a real trickle down. I think religion, particularly evangelical Christianity and more right-leaning Roman Catholicism has a lot to do with that shift in our state from Robert Ray to uh, Terry Branstad to uh, our current governor, Kim Reynolds. And I think we see this replicated in other red right to work states like my home state, Indiana, um, and, and other surrounding states. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I don't know if I gave the most complete answer. I think it's complicated. I think Reaganomics had a lot to do with it, but I think it's, it's never a monocausal thing. We are speaking with ethnographer of religion and editor Christy Naban Warren, the author of Meatpacking America, How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland. And that's the very the next question I wanted to ask you, and it's a very general and open question, but how, I mean, you're an ethnographer of religion, so you would recognize this far more than I would because I do not have that kind of experience. How embedded is religious culture in employment and labor in the United States? How do we understand labor differently when we understand how it is affected by religious culture? Yeah, that's such a good question. And I, again, I like to give shout outs to colleagues who are doing such great work. I've got colleagues at Rice University who have the Faith at Work um, think tank there. Um, so they're doing a wonderful job like tracing this on a meta quantitative level. And there's a lot of books right, uh, out right now about faith in the workplace. And I think that one of the striking things for me, and that's something that I really try to detail in my chapter on Tyson and Columbus Junction and Iowa premium beef, how on one level, I really want to look at in the book, how everyday people, workers bring their faith in with them to the workplace, whether they wear it on their bodies, like Roman Catholics in the form of tattoos or like a scapular or praying the rosary and wearing a rosary. So I think you've got that, that sort of, uh, the grassroots individual lay person believer wearing his, her, their religion on their body, 
praying went on the line. But I think on, on a larger level, you also see it in corporate America. And what was really surprising to me, I think one of the reasons why I love to do research is I love to be surprised. Tyson has, um, Emma Green, the journalist, had a great piece in The New Yorker and, and sort of tipped me off on this. So Tyson has the largest chaplaincy program of any publicly traded company in the world. So at every Tyson plant, you, whether it's pork or beef or chicken, or mostly uh, pork or chicken, you'll have uh, a chaplain. And I got to be good friends with Joe Blay, who's the chaplain in Columbus Junction, where there's a Tyson plant. And, and it's fascinating because you've got this lexicon, this linguistic, if you will, of like, you know, almost like we're doing God's work here in the plant. And there's a lot of language that's classically evangelical Christian uh, that CEOs, CFOs, human resources uh, folks use, like that they're, they're wanting to be good stewards of people. And so they use sort of coded in some ways Christian evangelical language and make it the overarching lexicon at these meatpacking plants. I found this to be fascinating. We also see it with Chick-fil-A, which is meat also on the other end. So Truett, who founded, who founded the company in Arkansas, right? I mean, you know, while he also used and also uses it as sort of this Christian, it's like a Christian company, right? So you can feel good when you buy Tyson chicken. You can feel good if you eat a Chick-fil-A that you're providing for their families, right? And so I find this fascinating on a corporate level. Um, and I think more and more anthropologists are looking at religion in the workplace on a corporate level, but also on an individual level. I saw it also at Iowa Premium Beef, where it wasn't quite as worked in uh, to the warp and weft of the workplace, but I picked up on it sort of when I would code the conversations that I had had. The men and women who lead Iowa Premium Beef very much see, them, see themselves as you know, leaders wanting to be good stewards. And they use classic Christian language um, that I would pick up on just because I've studied this stuff. So yeah, I'd love to see more work on religion at the workplace because quite frankly, right? We spend, mo the average American, we spend most of our working days working, right? And so we have to study religion, not just in places like churches, temples, steeples, synagogues, right? We have to go where the people are. And we also have to go with the people who are employing them. And so that was an exciting, sort of surprising part of this research, for me at least. So as an ethnographer of religion then, do you see acts of religiosity happening around you uh, all the time that people who are not ethnographers of religion may not recognize? Because I, that's yeah. something that was fascinating with uh, last year and the Black Lives Matter movement when people were finally starting to recognize the acts of racism that happened in front of them when they just didn't realize it in the past. So do you recognize re religiosity around you on a regular basis? I totally do. And Chuck, I totally annoy my teenagers and my tween. They're like, mom, you're reading into this too much. So just so you know, my teenagers and my teenage son and tween daughter are always checking me on this. Absolutely, though. I teach a class at University of Iowa, Sport and Religion in America, and it's a pretty popular class. And, you know, my God, you go to a Hawkeye game and it's like, oh, my gosh, it's like it's ritual. It's what. The, the anthropologist of religion, Victor Turner and Edith Turner would have called communitas. It's people coming together for three, three and a half hours and forming a kind of sacred community, right? You eat certain foods at a tailgate, you wear certain colors, you wear your garb, you sanctify a place that might not normally be thought of as qua religious. Um, you're also doing quote unquote profane things like you're drinking alcohol, you might be smoking some weed, you know, you, you are doing also some profane things that are on the outskirts of the sacred. So yes, I think, you know, I, I tend to think, see 
um, religion in everyday life, like all around me. And I actually did get, get to go to the opener game, Indiana, which is my alma mater versus Iowa football. Oh my God. I was seeing it all around me. And I, I probably annoy people because I talk about it so much, but that is how I see the world, Chuck, as an anthropologist of religion, I'm always looking for meaning and ritual and community making. Um, I think it's all around us. We just need to, we just need to look. You were mentioning Columbus Junction, Iowa, and the Tyson plant, and you write that towns like Columbus Junction, which has one school and a meatpacking plant that employs the majority of working adults in the area, and West Liberty, the first Latino-majority town in Iowa, show that proximity to new neighbors, shared social spaces, and small-town pride bring together. And you talk about this in contrast with all of the negative posts that you might see on social media. Did Do those attributes, shared social spaces, and small Small town pride defines small town rural Iowa far more than what we may see those same people post on social media. Because for an outsider like myself, it's far easier to define a community you may not have contact with to do it through social media that it is to uh, than it is to go to and share the social spaces or understand their pride. So. How much are they defined by their social media posts? How much are they defined by their spaces and their pride? Great. That's such a great, rich question. Um, and, and certainly there's truth in these social media posts, right? Racism is alive and real in these small towns. I mean, absolutely. But also I wanted to show that there's another story running parallel to this, right? That when you have the Dia de Guadalupe pres- uh, celebration every uh, December 12th in West Liberty, Columbus Junction, Washington, Iowa, pick your town where you have um, a sizable number of Latinos, right? You will also have, you know, white folks, you know, watching the celebration, you know, with, uh, you know, you know, treating this with respect. Some white folks like myself will walk it, you know, will walk in the processions. But, but, you know, I think these are complicated places. And I think that I'm glad you read that part about, you know, there, there's one school, one plant, uh, one employer, one store, one barber, one beautician in these towns. And these are the places where people come together. And it's not always harmonious, of course not. But I think um, this is why I'm such a fan of Sarah Marsh's work. I mean, small town America, I think, can be really big, big and really important ways. And, you know, I think that um, one of my goals for the book, Chuck, was to really push back on these time-worn tropes of the angry white racist, which of course exists in the United States everywhere, not just in small towns, but also on the coast. I would like to point out if anyone is listening in from the coast, right? I wanted to show that there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on here in the middle. And I think that, you know, I tell my colleagues this, and I was telling my husband this after I had the intensive field work at Iowa Premium Beef. I said, you know, I haven't had I had the most sustained intensive conversations about gender and working class America that I've ever had in my life, talking with meatpacking plant workers and some of the human resources folks, like really gritty conversations where we were really like pushing each other and listening to each other. There was no cancel culture there. There was just like, we were really trying to sit with our differences and really listen to each other. And if if, if there's any message that I was hoping to get across in this book is that I'd like for us all to become better listeners and to really even like listen to people we might not like, right? So just listen and try to understand where they're coming from. Doesn't mean we have to be besties. Doesn't mean we have to hang out. But I think that a problem right now is that we just don't listen to each other. And that's a problem with social media. We can so easily cancel people out 
And we think we know them, but we don't really know them because we haven't been to these towns. We haven't spent time with them. And I am eternally grateful to my interlocutors in the state because I learned so much from them, white, brown, and black, and Asian. I just, um, I'm a better person. And I'm a better person because I talked with some Trump supporters. I really think I understand why these folks supported him, even though I personally don't. Um, and I try not to have this be a hagiography, what religious studies scholars would call like a like a sainting, where I don't want to, I don't want anyone to come out as a saint in this book. Um, but I want to just show how complicated people are, and I hope people have respect for that. So you also uh, you believe America? Let me reword the phrases. <laughs> Do you believe rural America right now is currently going through a time? Where there, or when there is a, a growing awareness of racism and how they are complicit in the structures of racism. Do you think that they have blinders on or do you think that there is a conversation that is evolving right now in rural America that urban America might dismiss, ignore, or it is at least invisible to them? I think there is a conversation, conversations going on. I think some people will always have blinders on. Some people don't want to take their blinders off, right? But I think there's a sizable number. I think we've reached a tipping point, if you will, to invoke Malcolm Gladwell's term. I think we've reached a tipping point where there are enough white folks and working class white folks because they work alongside, you know, brown and black folks from around the world. They see how hard these folks are working. They see how neat and tidy their yards are. They smell the delicious foods. In fact, when I was going through training at Iowa Premium Beef, I went through the, the employee training and got to know my fellow trainees. You know, we were during, before the lunch break, we were commenting on like, oh my God, the food smells so good. You know, you smell food from around the world being microwaved on lunch breaks when, when you're going, you know, when you're in these plants, the food smells incredible, right? And so I think that, you know, in these, these, these meatpacking plants are like, these are like mini UNs and a lot of fascinating cultural exchanges are taking place that that very very few of us are able ever able to get to see so i think that's where the conversations start in the packing plants people start to reimagine and rethink those stereotypes they had about white people brown people black people asians whatever so too this is happening in parish spaces catholic churches protestant church spaces mosques in the heartland where people from around the world where muslims from around the world are are praying together. And so I think it's starting on the ground. I think the blinders are starting to be not necessarily maybe to fall off right away, but they're starting to fade a bit. Like those progressive lenses, you know, when you go outside, they get dark and then they, they sort of keep fading when you go inside again. I think it's it's a process. It's not just like, like, a, like a happening. I think for most people, it's a process. And um, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that spaces like meatpacking plants and as as rural places start to become more integrated and more diversified that this could be ground zero in a very positive way for changes to start happening in our nation well i want to talk about that reflecting on whiteness and white racism just for a moment you write the specter in all of this is white racism whites vexed understandings of white privilege and race in america what i encountered in my ethnographic field work was the sticky wicket of whiteness the whites i interviewed struggle with their towns changed in changing demographics they know intellectually and from experience that their towns were once crumbling and that they are now doing much better thanks to refugees substantial economic contributions they tolerate and even accept 
the presence of refugees in their communities because refugees' labor has kept them alive. Yet they struggle with this major change and the browning of their towns and state. They miss their downtowns being all white, and it is discomforting for them to think about this. Why is that kind of thinking discomforting, in your opinion, for rural whites in Iowa to think about missing their towns being all white? Does that discomfort, do you think that reveals something to them about themselves that they would rather not recognize? Yeah, I'm. you know, I'm so glad you read that because I actually had put my hot pink sticky notes on there too. And I put read because I wasn't sure if I would read. So that is exactly what, <laughs> what I would have read. So thank you. Um, yes, I think, you know, a lot of scholars, a lot of people have written about this sort of white nostalgia of the way things used to be. And I don't know personally what Columbus Junction or Washington, Iowa, you know, um, or Tama, Iowa, or West Liberty used to be because I didn't personally live there, but most of the whites I interviewed remembered it as a really wonderful time where everyone knew each other, they could go in, everything was safe. I think that, again, it's a both and, even though many of the working class white folks I interviewed are, are much more open to the more recent refugees now because they've seen them working hard. They, they know the realities intellectually. They know that they are a lot like their own families. But I think there's such white nostalgia is a powerful drug. You know, I don't know any, I think imagining things as they used to be, right? You know, 1950s nostalgia, like, you know, right? Think about how many sitcoms were, have, have been about that, right? And I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if that's ever going to go away. I don't know. So again, I try to I try to paint a both and yes, white racism, yes, white privilege, but also openness to new refugees, but also driving to the Washington Iowa Walmart, even though it's a half hour, rather than going to the Latina-owned small grocery store downtown because you're just not as comfortable going downtown anymore. So how do we how do we understand that? Do we do we dismiss people? Uh, like this lovely Nigerian woman I got to know, Corinne Hargraf, and who's literally a lovely, beautiful person. She's she's a little nervous going downtown. She's also 95, you know? She'd rather go to a grocery store further away where she just sort of feels safer and knows it. It's complicated, right? I don't want to come out and say, boy, this 95-year-old woman is just a racist because I think she's a lovely woman who has done a lot of wonderful things in her community, Um you know, she has a lot of friends who are Latina. She is very involved in her church, but yet there's that discomfort. I think, I think linguistics is part of it, Chuck, too. I mean, I, I write about this um, in the book. I mean, we're a recal- recalc- recalcitrantly monolingual nation, right? I mean, we don't start teaching quote unquote foreign language until seventh or eighth grade, which is really late. Most Americans are monolingual. I think one of the things that I try to get across of it too is most of these white folks don't know Spanish. Most of them don't know other languages. By by you know, on the but by 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 contrast, most refugees are multilingual, right? And so I think that language is such a barrier. And the fact that so many white people don't know Spanish and aren't really willing to learn Spanish. So I think we must be more willing to learn other languages, especially Spanish, which, you know, I, I, I mean, I think it should become a second language, you know, or at least be taken seriously so we know the basic working vocabulary. So I think part of this fear is language. I mean, these white folks literally don't understand 
another language other than an English. I think that that can't be underemphasized. On our Patreon podcast last year, I had subscribed to a small town weekly newspaper called the Houghton Lake Resorter from Northern Michigan. And I was always struck by how the front page would celebrate acts of charity, especially during COVID, all the mutual aid that they were doing, providing meals for people who didn't have any money, who didn't have any access to food. It was always surprising to me to see that on the front page. And then you go to the letters, the editor page, and it's just filled with racist hatred. What explains that disconnect from the charitable act and then the words of racial hatred. What explains that openness that rural Iowa, for instance, has to refugees and then voting for people like Donald Trump? Boy, I don't know if I have the answer to that, Chuck. I, I, I really wrestle with that. I'll be honest, you know, um, I try really hard to be an empathetic person and try to understand um you know, other perspectives, but but I really struggle with these letters to the editor, um, how hateful they are. And you're right. I mean, they sit side by side with the charity and compassion. I don't know. Maybe we're a bipolar nation. I don't know. And I, and I don't say this, you know, I don't mean this flippantly at all. I mean, I think um, we really sit at a crossroads here and I don't know if this is just part of the American experience, part of who we are as white Americans, I don't know if, if that's just who we are, our personality type. Um, but I think if we look historically, acts of charity, works of mercy, um, the Beatitudes, uh, I'm, I'm thinking like Christian language here because so many of the people I interviewed identify as Christian with this hate and uh, vitriol, which is also espoused by folks who claim to be Christian. Oftentimes these folks go to the same church. They're part of the same, you know, religious community. Yeah, I I don't really feel like I have a great answer to that. I find it vexing and troubling. It's something that um, I think my next book projects is I'm going to continue in rural America and trying to understand farming and faith post-1980s farm crisis. So I think the next big ethnographic project will be working more exclusively with white working class and, and really trying to understand just this. Um, I'm from, you know, my um, ancestors um, are from the Beha Valley in Lebanon who came over in the end of the 19th century to Gary, Indiana. They were fruit peddlers. They were dark skinned. Many of um, my, my papa growing up, um, who was second generation, the first to be born in the, in the United States, would also say racist things. And I'm like, Papa, but you experience this. How can you in turn say this? You know, it's it's the irony of our experience. I, I'm not sure, especially especially folks who have been victims of racism. Um, many Mexican Americans I've interviewed, you know, have a hard time with undocumented Mexicanos because they believe that they make them look bad. And so there's a lot of ironies built into into how we view the other, and maybe perhaps maybe once we are de-othered by the bigger group, the meta level, then we in turn other, other, other people. That seems to be a pattern, a sociological pattern. I'm going to, I'd like to investigate this more, but I certainly don't have an answer. I'm wondering if you have an answer to your question. No, I do. No, I do not. And I wouldn't even try to give one because I'm not as smart as you are. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about uh, Trump just for a moment, because you said that you understand the why people voted for him. You write what Trump did very well before his 2016 election was to tap into white Americans fears and also their hopes for a more robust 
farm economy. Since the farm crisis of the 1980s, these individuals and communities have endured hardship and struggles and have been let down by U.S. policies that have continued to offer their elusive support, but have largely failed rural America. Uh, Far more often in 2016 and 2020, media coverage would cite Trump's success with the Rust Belt in states where manufacturing, including steel and auto production, have for the most part disappeared. I didn't hear this discussion on farm policy. How much does the farm crisis of the 1980s still have an impact on U.S. policy and politics because the 1980s farm crisis seems to again happen right around the time of the rise of neoliberalism in the United States as we discussed with historian Suzanne Schneider yesterday. So how much does the farm crisis of the 80s still have an impact on politics, especially when it comes to how it affects the lives of Iowa farmers? I think it continues to have a huge effect. Um, the farmers I did interview for the book, again, I think I'll, I'll interview far more for the next project, um, have visceral memories of fathers, uncles um, who had hanged themselves, you know, uh, in the rafters and barns. So the struggle is still real. And every year, you know, there are fewer um small farms. Um, you know, you have heritage farms. Interestingly, you have a lot of women white women in the state of Iowa uh, who are who are widows and who have inherited farms and who are leasing out farms to white men and increasingly number of Latinos who are farming the land. And so I'm really interested in that and sort of this gendered turn in farm ownership. And I have colleagues at the University of Iowa and Iowa State who are much better versed than I am, but this I'm so interested in sort of the, the continued fallout. But also I want to know from the farm crisis of the 80s, I also want to know how Iowa is rebounding and how it's going to, like we have more and more hops farmers. Um, The hops industry is a growing um, but burgeoning uh, industry here uh, in the Eastern part of the state. I think that we're gonna start seeing smaller farms diversify more. Um, I think we're seeing more refugees earning enough money to pool their resources and buying land. Uh, So I'm really interesting. I'm really interested in sort of the post 1980s, the fallout, but also ways that we've seen. So ways we've seen continuities, um, the poverty, the angst, ways maybe things aren't rebounding. But I'm also wanting to see the other story that we see. How are farms rebounding? What are the new farms? What are the farms of the future for places like Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas and Indiana? You also write that religion gives the women and men who work on the line at meat processing plants the belief that the gritty, difficult work they're doing has a deeper meaning and purpose. Working in the plant pushes one's faith to the limits. As you were saying at the beginning of our conversation, it is in the sacred blood of the sacrificed animals, the intensive process of intake, slaughter, and dissection of animals' bodies is itself a ritual process. Is a togetherness built by the horrors of meatpacking work? Is it like going through some traumatic experience and sharing issues like PTSD? Is suffering from neoliberalism then leading to some level level of togetherness in small rural communities that have refugee populations? Absolutely, absolutely. And in fact, I I write about PTSD uh, in the book and how so many of these workers, refugees, come to the United States suffering from PTSD. It's no surprise that the chaplains who are in the Tyson plants were former prison chaplains, right? They literally cut their teeth um, ministering to soldiers. Um, Joe Blay, um, the chaplain who I've become good friends with at the Tyson and Columbus Junction, 
um, you know, shared some horrific memories of what it was like. He saw men and women die who, who he ministered to. And so I think that absolutely uh, togetherness through horrors, um, the suffering from neoliberalism, as you put it, I think I think you're spot on there, Chuck. Yeah. And do you think that there is any kind of realization within meatpacking workers, within essential workers, of their growing power now that they've been able to stand up against the meatpacking industry, stand up against the policies of President Trump, and show that they can close down a factory if they need be? Do you think that there is going to be a rejuvenated labor organizing or unionization, even amongst refugee workers in the meatpacking industry? Yeah. I not only hope so, but I think so. I think what we what we saw uh, out in North Carolina, as well as here in Iowa, workers just refused to show up. They're like, you're not gonna have COVID protocols and I'm not gonna risk the health of my family because most of these refugee families have multi-generational homes, right? You've, you know, you've got abuelas living, you know, in multi-generational homes and so, um, as, as Joe Blay, my, my chaplain friend at Tyson told me, he goes, you know, these folks aren't willing, uh, they'll, they'll risk a paycheck, but they don't want to risk the health of their families. And so literally these folks, we are, we're seeing some collective activism here, voting with their feet saying, fire me, who else are you going to find? Because it's actually, you know, turnover is pretty high. And I think these plans have to pay what they do. They have to offer 401ks. They, they, they've, they, they don't necessarily offer this these things out of the goodness of their heart. They have to offer them in order to keep their workforce, right? And so I I, I think and I hope both <laughs> that we'll see more and more of this collective act, activism and action. And maybe we'll see um, unionization that actually has some teeth in this state. I mean, it's a, it's a right to work state. Um, I'm hopeful, but I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done. We've got a lot of great women and men um, they then there's on the ground doing really, really important work. I just want to chronicle it. <laughs> One last question for you. We've been speaking with an ethnographer of religion and editor, Christy Nabhan Warren, author of Meatpacking America, How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland. Christy is also the author of The Curcio Movement in America, Catholics, Protestants, and Fourth Day Spirituality. You can follow Christy on Twitter, at Christy Nabhan. One last question for you, Christy, and I promise... We do this with each and every one of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. I was really glad that you mentioned Sarah Smarsh earlier. You cite, uh, heard the journalist Sarah Smarsh Smarsh writing in her uh, 2018 book, Heartland, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth. Uh, award-winning book on the demographic shift from white to Latino in the Midwest. You cite Smarsh writing, that's a demographic shift, not without tensions, but one that has been embraced by some small town whites who knew their home must change to survive as Europeans who moved west and built sod houses on the prairie learned you either work together or starve alone. That's a pretty powerful phrase. Does that mean, do you think that inevitably means that neoliberalism is doomed, that community work will overwhelm the desire to be hyper-individual and only be on your own? Do you think that that uh, concept that you either work together or starve alone means that we will have a far more collective future than we have right now? I 
think, and I also hope so. Absolutely. Um, I see it as an ethnographer. Um, I see it as an observer, as a participant. So I've tracked this over the past seven years. And I find that these communities, you know, they're prosperous. Um, there's a lot of trade. People trade, you know, the food that they're growing. Um, I'm fascinated with apocalyptic novels and po post-apocalyptic novels and like shows like The Walking Dead, because what I love about those shows and those books is that they really sort of show how people struggle together. And really the only way they survive is if they do it together. And I do think that those towns and those communities that embrace newcomers and refugees, those are the ones that are going to prosper. I think the ones that don't, they won't prosper. And you see this, you see the shuttering of small towns across the Midwest. Those are the towns that either weren't, um, you know, on a rail line uh, that, that didn't accept refugees. Um, but I think the secret and the sauce, the magic sauce is acceptance of refugees, working together, diversifying your economy. Um, and I think that we're going to see more of that in the Midwest. Christy, thank you so much for being on our show today. Christy Nabhan Warren is author of Meatpacking America, How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland. Follow Christy on Twitter at Christy Nabhan. Thank you so much for being on our show. This is a fascinating conversation. Thanks so much, Chuck. You really made my day. This has been great. Yeah. <laughs> thank All right. you so much. Take care. <laughs> we told you so. This is hell. If that conversation with Christy Nabhan Warren author of Meatpacking America, How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland was in some way enlightening to the point of deprogramming you from a previous belief or understanding you may have held or made you feel more educated to or to realize that yes, this really is hell. Show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell or go to thisishell.com and click on support as Christy is doing right now to get one of our This Is Hell t-shirts. Go to thisishell.com and click on support to show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Support, support, support. This week's question from Hell, well, Egon, please remind us, what is this week's question from Hell, and how are our listeners responding? Chuck, this week's question from Hell is, what lies behind the final paywall? We've got a bunch of great answers from our listeners. Um, starting with Kenneth G, we have Sci-Hub. <laughs> All right. Uh, Borky B uh, chimes in, just another beep, Barry Weiss article. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see here. Sloan T. L. <laughs> screams, our freedom. <laughs> very helpful. Very optimistic guy. Yeah. Uh, let's see what we got. Uh, what lies behind the final paywall? Kevin Arthur W. Oh, this is ooh, this is frightening. Chimes in the paradise of the objectivist elect. Ooh, ooh that sounds creepy. <laughs> I, I don't like anything about that. I don't know if that's my favorite one, no. but that is oh my that's god. That's creepy. Uh, Ram D says an expose finally revealing Obama's last name. <laughs> John T. says, the paywall resurrections. <laughs> oh, let's see what we got. What lies behind are the final paywall. Nick A. says, Europe, on repeat, <laughs> ad infinitum. <laughs> I do like that one. <laughs> oh, we've got Zach N. who says, wallpaper. Nice. Let's see. Uh, Fabio AJL says the first paywall asking you to renew your subscription. Yep. Which seems like the, you know, 
the most realistic response we've gotten so far. Sure. What lies behind the final paywall? Bradley R. says God's favorite content. <laughs> I can only assume that's your show. Yeah, Chuck. yeah, yeah. You know. Right, we will, we've established this. So. Yes, yes, yes. And then finally, we have Kim G., who says, Dr. Bronner's Magic Soap. <laughs> so this week's question, Mel, is what lies beyond the final paywall? What lies beyond the final paywall? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question, Mel, again, gets your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page or tweet it to us or email it to us, but we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's Wednesday show when we are announcing this week's winner. Egon, who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time, right here at thisishell.com. Chuck, tomorrow we've got Zachariah Hughes, who will be talking about his three-part series from the Alaska Daily News called The Collapse in Alaska-Yukon River Salmon. You know, when I suggested this as a possible guest to Alex, and then Alex confirmed them, as of the moment we confirmed them, this three-part series was not behind a paywall. Now, it is behind a paywall. So you want to know what's behind the final paywall? An article about Alaskan salmon going gone. So we got an email, email at chuck at com from a listener of the show. Let's say he goes by the name of Pete. Pete writes, so my cousin has a son who is going to school in London. His son and his son's flatmate didn't really know anyone around, so they were open to meeting people. They noticed that a pot smell, the smell of weed, was coming out of another unit in the building, so they thought they might meet this person and get a line on some weed. They knocked on the door, an older man answered and invited them in to get high with him. They developed a relationship and started hanging out with this guy in his flat, getting high. This guy was apparently quite the intellectual, telling many elaborate stories and of his getting kicked out of academia in the U.S. And not everything that he was saying was being understood by his cousin's son. They had no idea this person who's been smoking pot with this older guy this whole time. They had no idea until after seeing an obituary in the paper with a picture of their pot-smoking friend that they were hanging out and getting high with the late, great David Graber, a past guest here on This Is Hell. Now, you may doubt this story, and that's totally cool. But I am telling you, considering our very weird relationship with David Graeber, it is entirely likely that this actually did happen. I would put a million dollars on it. I don't have a million dollars. I'll put a hundred bucks on it. I can scrape up a hundred bucks somehow. And because uh, like during one of our interviews with David, he was giggling uncontrollably throughout the entire conversation on his topic of BS jobs, as he called that whole sector of white-collar labor that cannot really describe what it is that they do to anyone who is not in their field. He was laughing about BS jobs the entire time we were talking to him. He was giggling like crazy. You should listen to that interview. It's really funny. So Graber, myself, and Jeff Dorchin also apparently partied together back in the 1990s during after-parties of performances 
by the theater group here in town, Theater Ublek, that Jeff is a co-founder of. The first time uh, David was on the show, he told us how honored he was to be on a show that has Jeff Dorchin as a contributor, which was surprising to me. So you can be skeptical of this David Graber story if you want, but it would not surprise me at all if David Graber invited 20-somethings into his flat to get high. 20-somethings, mind you, who could smell weed from down the hall. And my guess is David Graber could get really, really good weed. We also had another weird brush with fame and got an email from Dennis Casey, guitarist for the band Flogging Molly. Dennis writes, hey handsome, it's been a while, I miss the hell out of you. If, uh, or sorry, we are going to be playing in Chicago Tuesday, that's tonight, and wanted to see if you or anyone from the show wants to go. I know you are super cautious and being safe, but I can't be in Chicago and not ask you. Love the show more than ever, my beacon of light in these times. Thanks for being awesome, let me know. So, Flogging Molly is playing tonight here in Chicago at the Aragon Ballroom over on Lawrence in Uptown. And Dennis is correct, I am being super cautious because every time I am not, I catch a freaking cold like the one I'm still struggling with right now. Thank you, Dennis. It's great to hear from you. I appreciate the offer and would have loved hanging out with you backstage again. I have had so much fun hanging out with Flogging Molly. I appreciate your kind words, Dennis, about This Is Hell. If anyone who is listening right now is going to see Flogging Molly tonight over the Aragon, remember, you must bring your proof of vaccination and you must wear a mask. Yell This Is Hell at Dennis, and you are guaranteed it will give him and likely Nate and Matt a huge smile. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gaff-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Egon Shealy. Thanks to Christy Nabhan-Warren, author of Meatpack America, how migration, work, and faith unite and divide the heartland. Thanks to Egon for running the board. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>